Happy New Year, everyone. My name is Jen Malat, a partner in Freshfields Antitrust Teams in Washington and Brussels, and I welcome you to our new season of the Essential Antitrust Podcast, which we always start off with our traditional chat about our 10 key themes publication and our outlook for the year ahead. This year, our 10 key themes report was published on January 18th, and it collects insights from all corners of our global team to report on the trends that we expect to see in 10 important areas in 2023. Now, joining me today, I have three members of our global team to talk us through it. First, we have Jamelia Ferris, a partner in our Washington, D.C. office. Hi, Jamelia. Hi, Jen. And then we have Sharon Molly, a partner in our London office. Hi, Jen. And then we have Tona Oyen, a partner in our Brussels office. Hey, Jen. So we're here to talk about 2023, but before we get into it, let's briefly look back at what we foresaw for 2022 to see if we got any of it right. Now, in 2022, we said that transaction planning was going to be increasingly complex with new merger regimes, expanding theories of harms, new procedural tools, more foreign investment regimes and enforcement. And we also said that digital markets were going to be subject to even more scrutiny, both for deals and behavior. We also said that antitrust would be ever expansive into new areas, especially including labor markets. Now, a lot of that has panned out. And much of that we expect to continue into 2023, but we're not totally omniscient. So there are some things we didn't foresee in 2022, including the outbreak of the war in Ukraine and the ensuing energy and cost of living crises that have continued to affect global politics and antitrust. Those are still front of mind and those are going to contribute significant uncertainty to what global politics and antitrust will bring in 2023. I think the big question for us is how far will politicians and enforcers stretch antitrust to resolve these societal ills, along with climate concerns, COVID aftermath, labor issues, and inequality? So I'm going to start by asking each of you in turn probably a very unfair question, but Tona, why don't we start with you? What for you is your top antitrust issue that business has to deal with in 2023? Well, thanks very much, Jen. I think uh, choosing just one issue is, uh, is tough as there's so much going on across the global antitrust spectrum. But taking a big step back, I would say that businesses around the world should prepare for more active antitrust and more broadly regulatory enforcement, both in relation to deal making as well as day-to-day -day business conduct. So first, looking at the global M&A or the merger control landscape, we're expecting that the trends of 2022 will very much persist. Competition authorities will continue to take a very expansive approach to establishing their jurisdiction to call in deals for review. At the same time, we expect that the agencies will continue to push the boundaries of the theories of harm and the types of anti-competitive effects that they will investigate focusing not only on traditional price effects resulting from horizontal overlaps, but also on the impact that transactions may have on incentives to innovate, to reduce output, or foreclose competitors. Second, in terms of day-to-day -day business conduct, we expect that the antitrust authorities will be very much guided by the broader political and societal considerations when they conduct investigations. With high rates of inflation persisting in various parts of the world, we expect that enforcers will be keen to ensure that economic disruption does not provide for any anti-competitive activities. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of that, Tony. And of course, with all of that becomes um, greater demands on the internal business teams that handle these issues. They need to know more. They need to do more internal assessment and be ready for action. But there's also opportunities there for those teams to be well prepared um, when these things come, come down the pike. 
Sharon, how about you? What would you flag as the, the big issue to watch in 2023? Jen, I think they're really closely related to the points that Tona has made. So I think nobody will be surprised, but we should continue to expect to see a mass of major antitrust legislative and policy reforms taking place across a number of key jurisdictions around the world. So whether that's in and across Europe, the US and Asia, And really, I think that will mean the granting of new and enhanced powers to antitrust agencies, underpinning lots of the activity that Tona has already mentioned. To call out two, uh, in particular, I think one bucket is probably in the digital markets realm. So in the EU in particular, we're seeing not just an evolution, but essentially a revolution with prescriptive regulation like the EU Digital Markets Act coming into force. And what that will mean is that companies can no longer think only about antitrust in isolation, but need to think holistically about antitrust, regulatory and privacy laws and risks together. The other bucket is the area of subsidy control. So in the EU, we've got the new EU regulation that will have wide ranging impact uh, policing non-EU subsidies in deals and in other contexts. And that really will affect a number of companies worldwide. Yeah. And I think for in-house lawyers, it's a real challenge to keep up with so much new legislation around the the world. And it's not just, you know, enhancing existing antitrust tools or updating, you know, vertical guidelines. But a lot of these like the the DMA and the foreign subsidies regulation you mentioned are just completely new regimes that have to be understood and incorporated into internal processes. So certainly there is a lot going on. Jamelia, let's come over to the to the U.S. side of the pond where we have all kinds of, of things going on. But if you had to choose one, what would you flag for business in 2023? Well, I certainly would echo all the things we're seeing across the world that we've already talked about as major issues. But then to focus in on somewhat more narrow one that's certainly top of mind for companies as they think about their businesses is the continuing focus on antitrust role in companies' environmental and sustainability projects. Certainly those environmental and sustainability projects are top of mind for corporations, but then you layer in the antitrust implications, particularly as they're playing out in the United States, it gets quite complicated. It has implications for a vast range of industries and many in transition, as well as the activity they're engaged in whether it's acquisitions, JVs, collaborative efforts, or subsidies for clean energy and climate resilient infrastructure. Of course, this is a critical issue and it would have been regardless of many other um, things going on around the globe, but the Ukraine war and global inflation, things that you flagged at the outset are even making it much more complicated. And as we'll talk about, I think later today, it's become increasingly political and making it very difficult for companies to figure out the right way to navigate their competing interests. And and Jamila, I think all those points that you just raised are examples of the way that antitrust is no longer just antitrust. And there's a lot of different policy considerations bleeding into it that make all of this a lot more complex. But let's get into some of this in a little bit more detail. So, Tony, I'm going to come back to you. You you talked about M&A getting trickier and less, less predictable, which is a continuation of a trend that we've been seeing for a couple of years now. In 2023, do you think that that is going to be restricted to certain sectors like tech, or is that something we're going to see across all types of MA? I think it's fair to say, Jen, that some sectors will indeed remain especially sensitive in, in the antitrust space. And 
I may sound like a broken record, but the digital and, and the life sciences industries very much continue to be in the spotlight. But I would say that businesses across the entire economic spectrum, as you alluded to, Jen, should be prepared for lengthier and, and possibly bumpier merger reviews. We've seen prominent examples of the agency's increased skepticism of behavioral and more complex divestment remedies, for example, including that is on transactions in more traditional manufacturing industries. So in the EU, recent policy changes also imply that transactions can be subject to review by the European Commission, even when they do not reach the usual revenue-based thresholds. Many of you will, will probably be familiar with the Commission's expanded interpretation of the so-called Article 22 referral mechanism, which now allows the national competition authorities in the EU member states to refer transactions which do not meet any merger control threshold, either at EU or national level, to the Commission for review, even after closing. And there is also the new foreign subsidies regulation, which Sharon already alluded to, which adds a whole other layer of assessment to transactions involving companies that have received subsidies from governments of non-EU states. So the notification obligations under this new regime will kick in from September 2023 onwards, but companies should obviously already start preparing for that entry into force. And I think we're seeing similar trends in other parts of the world as well. So I'd say trickier and less predictable. I could certainly echo that in the United States. Absolutely. The enforcers who are heading up the Biden administration have signaled a move beyond traditional theories of harm, looking for other ways that mergers and consolidation can affect the economy and workers and consumers in ways that we haven't previously seen. That being said, while trickier and less predictable is absolutely true in the United States, it's not impossible. Deals are getting through. And if you look at the intervention rate in the United States, you're not yet seeing a huge swing. But what you need is sort of strategies to make sure that a trickier and less predictable process doesn't result in kind of deals falling apart. And we're certainly seeing strategies to make that happen. I think as you look out in the next year, um, you'll continue to see more litigation of challenging mergers, both by the agencies as well as companies who are using antitrust tools to fight their competitors. And as Tony said, we're going to see uh, the agencies much tougher on remedies. And just to make sure we cover the UK also, everybody knows and recognises that the UK CMA is a particularly active enforcer, and some will describe it as an aggressive enforcer when we look, for example, to the recent cargo tech and cone cranes deal where the UK CMA made clear that it was ready to take a divergent view, even in the context of a business not centred in the UK. So that we should expect to continue to be a reality that all businesses will need to deal with going forward. As Jamilia says, it's absolutely possible to get deals done. And we've seen a number of successful examples where the focus remains on convergence rather than divergence. But that really rests upon having a strategy from the outset uh, that everybody understands how the different regimes interact with one another and is ready to engage on that basis. The only other point I'd add is with the introduction of new regulations, so whether it's the EU DMA or the, the proposed powers for the UK's digital markets unit, that will also result in a number of deals by regulated platforms 
needing to be um, not notified, but making the relevant authorities aware or informing them of these transactions. So that will add um, also another interesting dynamic going forward. And perhaps a quick word on Asia as well. In China, for example, SAMR is uh, notably more skeptical these days of vertical and conglomerate mergers. I think that's a trend that we've seen emerge over the past couple of years. And as a result, businesses may be forced to offer behavioral remedies to, to obtain clearance, which may create issues when it comes to the global coordination of, uh, of transactions. I think I've already alluded to the fact that behavioral remedies may be more difficult to actually get through in, in, in other parts of the world outside of China. And Chinese reviews uh, or, or reviews more generally globally could, in a worst case scenario, uh, obviously force uh, parties as well to abandon their transactions. We've recently seen this happen, uh, for example, on the Dupont-Rogers uh, transaction, which was abandoned due to the uh, the party's failure to receive clearance in China before the long stop date. China also recently codified the uh, the agency's power to call in transactions then that do not meet the notification threshold. So again, a trend which we are uh, seeing in different parts uh, of the world. And all of this obviously increases the potential for quite unpredictable review timetables. So Tana and Sharon, I mean, you both mentioned the Article 22 referral risk, which we've talked about on this podcast before, but obviously it's a big change from that historical operation in Europe. As Jamelia knows, in the US, we've lived with that kind of call-in risk the entire time that the, the merger review system has been in effect. So it is an uncertainty that can be managed, but you know, all of this across the board means that parties have to be very thoughtful about transaction agreement, risk-shifting provisions, long-stop dates, all of these provisions that will govern how you have to navigate your way through this process to make sure that you have the space you need um, to deal with the uncertainty of timing and, and of outcome. Now, you know, we're talking, uh, I think, in a lot of cases here about these deals that present significant antitrust risk, whether that's horizontal issues or vertical issues, or maybe some of these relatively newer theories of harm. But how about acquirers that usually have presented a, a lower degree of merger control risk, like financial sponsors? You know, even they are finding themselves more in the spotlight now than they have in the past. And Jamila, I think we're seeing that especially in the U.S., where this has really been at the, at the front of mind for the, the DOJ and FTC in the last couple of years. Yes, absolutely, Jen. And I know you think about this a lot as it's such a big part of your practice. But yes, DOJ and the FTC are increasingly critical of financial investors and particularly PE firms. And this has been going on for some time, but in certain respects, but really is heightened at the current moment. They're particularly focused on transactions that combine smaller players in the same industry that tend to stay under the radar. So kind of a roll-up strategy of um, a number of portfolio companies. The agencies have looked at a lot of different ways to getting at that. One way they've done it is so if you have a deal, a private equity buyer has a deal that ultimately requires a divestiture or a private equity buyer is the buyer of um, divested assets in a transaction, the FTC is requiring as part of their approval of that divestiture prior notice for all future transactions, even where they're not reportable. So that gives the FTC another way of looking at transactions that otherwise might go under the radar, and you absolutely can expect them to use that. 
given all of this, you know, that we've talked about today, whether it's your PE buyer or a longer review or um, potential for litigation, what we're also seeing in transaction agreements is an allowance for a longer timeline to allow for litigation, regardless of what companies plan to litigate, so that they can push back on some of these strategies that the agencies are doing. And that, I think, is also a real shift. I think companies used to worry that a longer timeline would signal a problem with the transaction. But if you start through the lens of the agencies don't like consolidation, so potentially any transaction could be at risk, then you're a little bit less worried about the perception of a longer timeline in a transaction agreement. And, you know, Jamila, you're talking about that in the, the merger control context, but of course, adding to that complexity is the foreign investment regimes that have come into effect in the past few years, which adds just another another work stream that can increase the time, can increase the probability of divergent outcomes, and it's just another reason for um, these extremely long loans updates. Yeah, I mean, it really is incredible. CFIUS obviously is a longer regime here in the United States, but to be talking about foreign direct investment across the globe, it almost feels like it came overnight. Of course, it has developed over time, but it feels like that kind of impact on transactions and the potential for deal certainty on timelines has really changed. So across very many jurisdictions, transactions in increasingly wide range of sectors will be scrutinized under foreign direct investment rules. That includes things that you would expect, defense, military industries, but also emerging technologies, computing, advanced materials and healthcare, and critical infrastructure. Of course, in the U.S., given they've had these regimes longer, they have sort of a better resource regime that has actually stepped up to identify and call in, and in some cases, forth the investment of completed investments that pose national security risk. And in the U.S., China and Russia are likely to remain the principal focus. But, you know, investors from other countries and sensitive businesses have also received inquiries from CFIUS. Just to jump in on the UK, I think the position is uh, is very similar. So we've now had the introduction of the National Security and Investment Act. And in the first year, it's been a busy regime since it's come into force. So although the number of notifications made under the Act is slightly under the number predicted by the government in 2020, the number of deals that have actually had remedies imposed on them or been blocked or unwound is actually higher than was predicted. So just in this uh, first year of the regime, three transactions have been prohibited and, and two unwound, so effectively five deals blocked, all of which involved Chinese or Russian-backed acquirers of IP or some sort of ownership of advanced technologies or communications networks. So really, as Jamilia said, it really is this now global picture that needs to be navigated on the foreign investment front. And it can add months really to um, to deal timetables and future governance issues. I think the other point that is interesting is there's this move towards the regulation of outbound investments also um, on the policy agenda in the EU and in the United States. So that would then create this potentially additional layer uh, of regulation in deals where capital or sensitive technology is flowing to uh, to certain countries that are posing a risk. So we've been talking you know, quite a bit about the M&A context, but you, Tony, you said at the outset that we're seeing active enforcement, not just in M&A, but in um, other spheres as well. Where else should people be keeping an eye on next year? 
I think there are plenty of other areas to, to keep an eye on, Jen. Uh, in the EU, we, we, we clearly see a determination, for example, from the European Commission, but also the, the, the competition authorities at member state level to reinvigorate traditional cartel enforcement. And some of that, I think, uh, flows, again, from these broader societal pressures that we're facing to tackle increasing costs for businesses and, and rising prices for consumers. So on, on the back of that, we do expect to see more dawn rates, for example, in 2023. And as Sharon already alluded to, in, in, in the coming year, we'll also start to see the real-world effects of the new enforcement tools that are coming into play. We've spoken already about the foreign subsidies regulation in the context of the, um, uh, of, of the M&A world, but that tool or, or that regulation uh, will also be used to deal with the impact of foreign, i.e. non-European subsidies on business activity in the EU in the more general sense. And then there's obviously the EU Digital Markets Act, which we've mentioned here a number of times. So companies designated as gatekeepers will really have to start complying uh, with the obligations of the DMA in short order. So the deadlines for companies to submit, whether they think they um, have core platform services within the meaning of the DMA are due in July of this year. And then the European Commission is due to publish its decisions, its designation decisions uh, to those gatekeepers by September. So uh, a lot of action there in, in the digital sphere. And that approach is really spreading around the globe. So potentially there's the introduction of similar US legislation. But of course, we've already seen the German digital market powers already in use. The UK, although has a digital markets unit there in place, is also expected to be given powers to be able to impose bespoke conduct requirements on digital firms with strategic market status. So generally expect a lot more investigations and probably a lot of litigation flowing out of that in some shape or form coming soon. Jamelia, in the U.S., can you talk a little bit about what we're seeing on the investigation front where I think you know, the U.S. isn't uh, immune from this trend towards more investigations? No, absolutely not. And at the end of last year, the agencies even got an increased funding source to increase resources because one of the things that often happens in the U.S. with respect to investigations is mergers sort of overtake the resources that they have for investigations. So that could have potential market shift as well because you have heads of agencies who want to launch investigations and now they have potentially the people to do it. So for example, just a sign of the focus on investigations, the FTC last year approved a new policy statement that would expand the ability to use statutory authority that they already have to police unfair methods of competition and go after a much broader range of activity in some ways, very undefined, sort of we know it when we see it, activity that has been traditionally used in industry and not thought of necessarily as unlawful. So we can expect that to apply to all kinds of behavior. We already saw early this year, the application of that authority to propose a rule to ban all uh, non-competes. So there's a lot to watch there. And maybe we'll leave the question of, can they do that for another podcast? <laughs> I think the UK is also definitely heading the same way. So in, in 2023, we've got extensive reforms to the competition and consumer law regimes expected again coming soon. So new rules aimed at more effective market inquiries, 
stronger and faster enforcement against anti-competitive conduct, more powers to impose penalties. So again, more, more to be expected even outside of these bespoke regulatory regimes that are expected uh, for digital markets only. And let's not forget um, APAC, where I think we have a similar trend of uh, investigations and enforcement set to increase, both from the more mature regimes in the region, like Australia, Korea, Japan, Singapore, Taiwan. We expect those regulators to expand their powers and shift their enforcement priorities, maybe similar to what we're describing in the EU and UK and US. Uh, But we're also seeing some of the more emerging regimes like Hong Kong and Malaysia, Philippines and Vietnam really start to step up their enforcement activity. So really expect that to be an active region. And I think you can learn quite a lot more about that on our um, Essential Asia Antitrust podcast series where we delve into that region in a lot of detail. And Tony, you mentioned China before where I think it's clear that antitrust continues to be a really key enforcement tool for the government. And I understand that there are some more recent reforms that just give the Chinese authority even more power to to do these kinds of investigations. Is that right? That is right. So we, we've seen some sort of reset recently of the Chinese antitrust regime involving higher fines for businesses that engaged in, in anti-competitive conduct, personal liability and, and, and punitive or, or so-called super fines for the most serious antitrust violations. The Chinese agencies are now also, we see zooming in on, on the role of data in, in the digital sector, the risks of abuses on, on, on platform business and, and the like. So very much consistent with what we were talking about earlier, this sort of following suit with, with what, what's going on in other parts of the world. So this was really a whistle-stop tour of what we expect to see in, in 2023, which really is more enforcement, tougher enforcement, continued expansion of of theories of harm, new legislation. And planning for and managing all of this clearly is going to be critical for businesses to a successful 2023. And that's especially true for businesses that are looking at cross-border deals or that have multinational um, operations and, and have to navigate this, not just in one country, but in many. So You know, if I am a a GC sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, this all sounds like a lot to handle in 2023, you know, for each of you, can you give me one action point that someone could walk away with and say, okay, this is going to make my, at least the antitrust part of my life, a little more organized for the coming year? Maybe Sharon, we can start with you. I think um, takeaway would be plan ahead. So in order to be able to execute complex cross-border M&A, which touches on antitrust and foreign investment regimes in an integrated way, you need to plan ahead. So there is increasing unpredictability, but that does come with some opportunities for well-organized merging parties and also for interested third parties that are looking to disrupt a transaction. Jamila, what do you think? Yeah, and I think it's critical that folks follow closely new legislation and policy changes. Think about how they may affect your business and how to implement them in practice. That may sound like a lot given all the things that we talked about today, but I know that we will do our part to help you and follow along and pull out the next key themes that come from these changes. And Tona? And finally, from my perspective, I'd say uh, make your voice heard. There, there are still several consultations that we're expecting on new legislation and, and new guidance. And there will be opportunities in, in the coming 12 months to, to make your voice heard and have your say on the, uh, the aspects of any new 
rules that, that, that we will see entering, entering into force in the future that may concern you as a company. Well, there you have it. Thanks very much, Amelia, Tona, Sharon, for sharing your views on what we can expect in 2023. If you want to hear more about this, you can pick up a copy of our 10 Key Themes report. It's available on the website, or you can get a copy from any of your Freshfields contacts. And if you think we didn't get into detail enough on one topic or another right now, don't worry. We're going to be getting into more detail on all of these themes over the course of the year on our podcast, as we always do. So thank you very much for listening. I'm Jen Malat, and we'll see you next time with more Essential Antitrust.